Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello there, welcome back to another episode of This Week in History with me, Dan the Viking. Uh, we are joined by Dad again this uh, this week. Um, we have one that I wouldn't say we've been putting off, but this episode, Dad has this tendency to research an episode and then go, oh, this is a great episode, and then a week later comes up with a better idea and go we'll do this one and then a better one and a better one and a better one and this one as soon as you said it i was like this is a fantastic episode and then you came up with your hitler and your john bonnet ramsey and things like that and i was like okay well we'll leave that one to another date well that day is today um i think people might know this story um, Quite possibly, I think people will know the name. I think it's oh, I one of so. them, one of those names people know. Um, we did slightly touch on him in the last episode that you did. Well, he did we, get a mention. Yeah, he did get a mention. So I thought the reason we'll do this one is because one, it's been sat in your archive for a few months, and uh, two, it is not really a follow-on from the last episode, but. There is a, a slight link between this man and his, let's say, political standings with the last episode. Um, but it's not what he's famous for. It's not, no. no. And in fairness, he was famous for quite a lot of things. And, and this is sort of like a, almost like a footnote, isn't it? The fact that he had a, a slight affiliation with the Nazi party, same as someone like Henry Ford. You know, they're not, he's known for the cars. He's not known for that and... Uh, this gentleman is exactly the same, I would say. So, hmm. who are we talking about? Charles Lindbergh? Yes. 
We are. <laughs> and I, I think we covered a little bit of him in the Amelia Earhart. He was mentioned in that episode He was mentioned well. in that one as well. See, so we have got... He's, he's been mentioned before. We've just not done the actual episode. Now, this episode is about an incident involving Charles Lindbergh. Mm. Kind of the defining moment of his life, really. Considering he had Could be, yeah. quite a lot of fame up to the point of this happening. So, mm. yeah. Ready to go. Yeah, always. Okay. Right, today we are going to go back to the 1930s. So we're talking 90-odd years ago. Yeah. And we're going to look at one of the most famous crimes in American history. Now, I'm going to cover the crime itself, the sequence of events, the investigation, and some of the controversies that have come to light over time. And there are quite a few. Okay. Um, if I don't manage to cover it in massive detail, please forgive me, because there are so many little twists and turns in this, it's going to take several hours to cover them all. So I will try to be as concise as possible, and I will give a balanced view, but some of these views may be controversial. Okay. That's, okay. that's always good. We like a good controversial little warning. Well, yeah. So... I'll state at the beginning that none of the views expressed in this particular podcast are mine. Okay. Uh, I kind of hope they're probably not yours as well, but uh, I'll leave you for that one. And We'll find out. <laughs> it may be uncomfortable for some people, but I will leave your listeners to make their mind up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, Charles Lindbergh was, in the 1930s, he was literally the most famous man in America. Um. He was, after all, the first man to fly solo across the Atlantic, which he actually did in May 1927. And since then, his fame had spread, not only through the US, but throughout the world. And you're talking of a time without television or social media. He was the world's most famous man. I mean, after his famous solo flight, he embarked on a tour around the US, where he was seen in person by over a quarter of the entire population of the United States. Wow. There wasn't a town in the whole country that hadn't heard of him. And along with his wife, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, they were probably the most famous couple in the world. Wow. Okay. 22nd of June, 1930, they had a son. And they named him Charles Augustus Lindbergh, Jr., Yeah, that's the thing Americans do. And it's not that common in this country, unless you're royalty. We don't tend to... We don't have junior as a name, as a a title in in, in, the And did it ever cross your mind to call me David Junior at any point? No. No. No, and to be honest, had I had boys, I don't think Daniel Junior would have been on the card either. No, so it's just one of those... It's an American-y thing. Yeah. I was banned from calling one of the girls Daniela, but I wasn't allowed that. All right. Um, and this event, the birth of Charles Augustus, was in, published in more papers around the world than any other news item, and that included the uh, the births of the royal children in the UK. So that would have been Queen Elizabeth. Would have been Queen Elizabeth, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's quite impressive when you think about it, you know. It's not too bad, is it? Yeah. So this pro- this podcast... Here we go to the actual part itself. Yes. It's about the kidnapping of Charles Augustus 
and the subsequent police investigation. Okay. Now, I initially I had two ways of approaching this. The first was to give details of the incident, then put holes in the investigation. Uh, the second was to tell the story along with its faults and as it happened. I've decided to go with the first option. Okay. All right. Well, that comes from your police background as well, uh-huh. with, uh, poking holes in investigations. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, like you did with the John Bonnet Ramsey one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Lindberghs lived with Anne's parents in New Jersey in 1930, while their own home, which was near a place called Hopewell, was being renovated. The house was large, secluded, surrounded by woods, and the Lindberghs called it Highfields. Okay, that's their house, house that they are being that's being renovated. It was near a place called East Amwell. Now, the whole estate covered about 600 acres, and as a result of the ongoing work, the family only used the house at weekends, and they returned back to Anne's parents Monday to Friday. The weekend of the 28th of April 1932 was no different. The Lindberghs had their son and staff, and they went to Highfields for the weekend. During the weekend, Charles Jr. had a little bit of a cough. So, Charles ordered his wife and staff to remain there rather than make the journey back to her parents on the Monday. Okay. This was to be the first time that the family were present during weekdays. And their decision to actually remain there was actually spontaneous. Yes, it wasn't planned, it wasn't anything else. On the Tuesday, which was the 1st of March, Charles Lindbergh was due to give a lecture in New York in that evening. But for the first time ever, he forgot and he didn't go. Now, Charles Lindbergh was known for his memory. Yeah. Okay, but he didn't go. Instead, he remained at Highfields. Okay. So they got the whole family there. As was normal, the family's nanny, a a lady called Betty Gow, put Charles Jr. to bed in his room. Now, this was on the first floor. (laughs) Okay. It's a British first floor. It's a British first floor. So for your American listeners, that would be on the first story or, for their point of view, the second floor. Yeah. Yeah. Because we have the floor at the bottom of the house is the ground is the ground floor yeah because it's on the ground yeah and then the second first floor yeah. is the one above it yeah and then the which makes sense but i think the americans may have us on this one because first floor second floor third floor but to us the first floor is the ground is, floor. Is, well yeah it's the ground floor yeah but to us the first floor is actually the second one up yeah, it's yeah. the first floor. Yeah, which I would, I would, I would argue the Americans have got one over on the British. You see, though. I wouldn't. There, <laughs> you get. How can you have the first floor being the floor that you're on? Because it's the first one you're on, and it's the first level. It's the ground level. Yeah, so it could be ground and first, but yeah, I, I would say that the floor we're on now would be the second floor. I can, I can understand why it would be the second because we're 
on the second story. No, 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 no. This but is it's the... weird. But we do we do the first we do two story buildings, which is what a house is two story building. But it's we all, we would say that has two floors. Yes, yeah, a two story building. It yeah. has a ground floor, a first floor, and a loft. Yeah, but we would say it has two floors. Yes, yeah, two story. Yeah, two but... stories. You have a ground floor. And you have a first floor, and you have the roof area, which is the loft. Yeah. So you have basically <laughs> three floors. Yeah. First, second, third. Which is why it is a two-story house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I yeah. I I I'm in agreement with the Americans on this one. Although I do still do the ground floor, first floor, like go into go into a British lift. It's yes. G one two three. <laughs> yeah, it is actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or if you go into Watford, it's L M U M, and then because they do the yes. up, upper mal, lower mal, yeah. upper mal, first floor. Yeah, because we have to be awkward. Yeah, but that's because the lower mal is actually below ground level. It is, which on most lifts in the UK would be B for basement. For basement, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, very strange. Well, there we go. That's uh, five minutes talking about lifts and floors on the houses. <laughs> Yeah, five yeah. minutes talking about lifts and yeah. lift, lifts and, and and floors. Okay, <laughs> so as we go, Tuesday the first of March, Charles Lindbergh didn't go. Yeah, right. So so he got his nanny Betty Gal to put Charles Lindbergh Junior to his bed, which is on the first floor. <laughs> You're sticking with that. I'm sticking with that. It was the room on the corner of the property and the only room in the 14-room house which just happened to have a faulty shutter on the window. Okay. We don't have shutters in no. the UK. No, it's just you too have, cold. You have a window and that's it. Yeah, and a curtain. And a curtain on the inside yeah. to, to block out the light. You do not have a shutter. No, okay, it's but, too cold here to have... But Americans do have shutters, okay? Or some buildings do anyway. So, as instructed by Charles Lindbergh, she opened the window very slightly. Uh, He had a rule that once Charles Jr. was placed in his room, no one was to enter between the hours of 8 and 10 p.m. That's his rule. Put him to bed, leave him for two hours. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. A lot of people have routines with kids. Um, The family retired to a room on the ground floor. Yeah. (laughs) All right. With their dog, um, which was directly beneath the nursery, which was where Charles Jr. was sleeping. So they're in the room below. Okay. At 10 p.m., Betty goes into the room to close the window. But she finds that Charles Jr., who is by then 20 months old, is not in his cot. So he's not there. So she's not initially concerned, but she does go downstairs to tell the parents, who were still in the library directly below, that he wasn't there. Okay. Now, part of this reason Betty wasn't worried was because a few months previously, Charles Lindbergh himself had played a joke on the family by hiding Charles Jr. in a wardrobe and claiming that he'd been kidnapped. Okay. <laughs> it's not really a funny joke. Well, it probably was to him. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, that, that was why she wasn't too concerned. All right. So the family go up to um, Charles Jr.'s bedroom and 
Charles finds a handwritten note on the windowsill. Right, okay. Demands $50,000 for the child's safe return. Right. Now, the note was filled with spelling mistakes. Okay. Um, the, the note said, yeah... Uh, dear sir, have fifty thousand dollars ready. Twenty-five thousand in twenties, fifteen thousand in tens, at ten thousand in fives, and after two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for not. Uh, we warn you for making anything public, or for notifying the police. The child is in good care. Indication. For all letters are signature and three holes. Now, the the spelling mistakes, ready was spelt wrong, no A. Money was spelt with no E. Uh, anything was spelt with a D instead of a TH. And good was spelt G-U-T. Okay. All right. At the bottom of the letter, there was a sign and three small holes stamped in the letter. Now, this signature was a specific design. It consisted of two interconnected blue circles surrounding a red circle with a hole punched through the red circle and two more holes to the left and right. A later police examination of it determined that the writer was most likely German. Okay. And this was due to the word ready, money, signature, holes, all misspelt. And the word good was spelt G-U-T, which is German for good. Okay, makes yeah. sense. So, uh, this was the first indication that Charles Jr. had been kidnapped. Now, Charles... Lindbergh is one of those people that wants to be in charge. Yeah. He immediately takes charge of the situation. He grabs a rifle and begins a search of the property. The police are called and they find a child's blanket, some shoe prints and a handmade wooden ladder in the woods surrounding the house. Hmm. The ladder was some distance from the house and the footprints led away from it further into the woods. Now, bearing in mind, it's a 600-acre house, yeah. property, yeah? The ladder was built in such a way so that it could be collapsed for easier transport. It was handmade, but upon examination, it was found to be broken where the two sections joined. The blanket came from the nursery. The bedroom was searched and examined for fingerprints. No adult ones were found in the nursery, not even those of Betty Gow, the, the nanny. Hmm. None of the family's fingerprints were found there. The only ones that were found there were Charles Jr. There were no fingerprints found on the ladder. Now, Charles Lindbergh is, uh, is or was at the time, a major control freak. He couldn't just sit by and allow the investigation to be left to the experts so in a very short 
period, Charles became frustrated by the lack of progress by the police. He decided he would take control of the investigation. Now, that sounds similar to somebody we did a couple of months back. Mm-hmm. Does a little bit, doesn't it? Does a bit, doesn't it? <clears throat> he told the press what to print and the police what to investigate. In short, nothing was allowed to progress without first being approved by Charles Lindbergh, and all the information had to be run by him before any action could be taken. Charles was convinced that only he would be able to solve the case due to his fame and influence. But due to his fame and influence, the police chief, a gentleman called Herbert Schwarzkopf, yeah, I would say it, yeah. Now, do you know, have you, know, have you ever heard of Norman Schwarzkopf? No. Norman Schwarzkopf was the commander in charge of the Gulf War. General oh. Norman Schwarzkopf. Oh. He was the, yeah, the, so the police chief was... His... His, the, the, his the, father. His father. Huh. Anyway, the police chief allowed him to do it. Now, within days, two further ransom notes were received by the Lindberghs, and that upped the payment to $70,000. Now, a number of attempts were made to contact the kidnappers, but none appeared to be successful. The family were inundated with offers of help from hundreds of people, general members of the public, right up to even the gangsters of the era. In wow. fact, Al Capone even offered to help if he was released from jail. Funnily enough, they declined that one. Yeah. <laughs> Wonder why. <laughs> well, I, I always find it weird that he was arrested for something pointless. Mm. But so, yeah, it wasn't because they um, didn't believe him, though. And they didn't believe he couldn't help because they felt he might have been some use. Um, they just didn't want to give him the opportunity to escape. Yeah, I was going to say, he's probably got more connections than the police and would have known enough about, you know what I mean? Someone like that, Al Capone was one of the most famous gangsters in the world. I'm pretty sure he'd have had some sort of connection to that. Very possibly. But anyway, Charles Lindbergh eventually chose a teacher uh, by the name of John Condon. Um, to act as an intermediary. Condon had placed an advert in a Bronx newspaper on the 8th of March, off of his own back, asking for the kidnappers to make contact. Funnily enough, the next day, he received a note from the kidnappers saying they would accept him as a go-between. Convenient. Funny, that, yeah. Yeah. Um, it It was then he approached Lindbergh, who genuinely accepted his help. Not too sure about his motives for doing that, because they have never actually really been explained. Right, so no one really knows why he did it. Over the next few weeks, Condon communicated with the kidnappers using coded newspaper columns under the name of Jaffsey, with the replies being secreted all over the New York area. And as proof that Condon was communicating with the right people, they sent him Charles Jr.'s sleeping clothes. And they sent them on the 16th of March, along with a demand for the money to be paid within two weeks. 
Now, the communications received throughout this period were all examined by the police and they came to the conclusion they were all written by the same person and they all had that signature mark on the bottom. So, an arrangement was made to meet and, uh, and hand over the ransom money and they were going to do this on the 2nd of April. The place picked by the kidnappers was St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx. The ransom was packaged in a wooden box that was custom-made so that it could later be identified. The ransom money included a number of gold certificates. Now, there's a reason for that. Gold certificates were about to be withdrawn from circulation, and it was, was hoped that greater attention would be drawn to anybody spending them. The bills were not marked, but their serial numbers were recorded. Now, a gold certificate was a certificate of ownership that gold owners held instead of storing actual gold, and it was used as additional US currency until they were withdrawn from circulation in 1933. And they were the size of a standard banknote, so basically they were an addition banknote that was due to be withdrawn. So on the night, Charles Lindbergh and Condon drove to the cemetery. And John Condon went into the graveyard whilst Charles Lindbergh remained in the car outside several hundred yards from the meeting place. Charles refused to allow the police to take any part in the exchange or follow anybody leaving the area. In fact, he actually refused to allow them to take part in any of the ransom negotiations at all. So John goes into the graveyard. He hands the box containing the ransom money to a man calling himself John. So we've got John meeting John. Hmm. Yeah. The graveyard was unlit and Condon did not get a good look at the man. John handed Condon a note saying that the child was in the care of two innocent women on a boat called Nellie which was near Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Now, a search for that vessel was instigated immediately. The police became aware of it and, to be honest, at every other mooring site in the state. The boat could not be located and eventually it was conceded that the Lindberghs had paid out a lot of money for nothing. The investigation stalled. No new leads. But that was until the 12th of May, 73 days after the child had been taken. Now, a lorry driver called Orville Wilson stopped at the roadside for a call of nature. He walked into the woods and there he found the partially buried body of a child. Less than five miles from the the Lindbergh's home. The body was badly decomposed and there was evidence of wild animal activity. So, you know, I kind of think the animals had had a go at it. The body was identified by Charles Lindbergh as his son. Okay. So they found the baby. They found Charles Lindbergh Jr. And an autopsy revealed that Charles Jr. had died from a fractured skull. Now, this is the poignant bit on the day of the kidnapping or close to it right okay 
I'll say back then that's uh, they weren't couldn't be a hundred percent, could they? Well, they're not as as accurate as they are today. I would admit that. Um, Charles and Anne had him cremated immediately, which again was not really the norm back then. No. So those are the circumstances of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Yeah. Okay. Now, the police believed that the kidnapping was an inside job. Nobody knew the Lindberghs would be home that night besides the family and the household employees. Suspicion fell on the maid, or one of the maids, a lady called Violet Sharp. She worked at the Morrow household, which was Anne's parents, and in Englewood. She gave a number of statements which were inconsistent when she was initially interviewed. And after the Charles Jr. was found, they wanted to question her again. On the 10th of June, the day before the interview, she committed suicide. She did this by drinking silver polish. <laughs> Didn't know that, did it? It's got... Um, Oh, called arsenic in it or something, isn't it? Don't know. I only remember. I only ever used brass, so I've never used. It's got something in it that's yeah. extremely poisonous, anyway. Downside: later police investigations proved that she was completely innocent of any involvement. Although no reason for her earlier statement discrepancies could ever be found, but she was innocent. Hmm. Well, I would assume then on that basis the suicide had nothing to do with the questioning. Well, don't tend, people the, don't tend to kill the, themselves. The day before. Anyway. Uh, now, no progress was made. The case was went cold. Until, that is, August 1934, which was two years later. 16 gold certificates from the ransom money turned up at separate merchants in the Yorkville and Harlem areas. Now, some of these merchants were able to describe the person handing over the bills. And the description matched the one that Condon gave of John, who was the man he met in the graveyard. Then, on September the 18th, 1934 a banker in New York City called the FBI to report receiving a gold certificate this one was different it had a New York license plate written on it for you 1341 NY it transpired that this was used to pay for fuel and the attendant who took it thought the customer might be a counterfeiter so he wrote down the car's registration number on it just in case the gold certificate wasn't honoured but a bank clerk spotted it the number of the car was traced to a car owned by a German okay a, uh, a Bruno Richard Hamptman um, who was a carpenter and he lived at 1279 East, 222nd Street, the Bronx, New York. Bruno, who went by his middle name Richard, was subsequently arrested on the 19th of September. And at the time of his arrest, he had a $20 gold.
gold certificate from the ransom money on him. So the police being what the police do, they searched his home. They found a further $13,000 from the ransom money hidden in a fuel can in the garage at the house. I'd say that's pretty cut and dry then. It's not looking good, is it? No. The so-called trial of the century was set for January 1935. Now, initially, the prosecution case was strong. Hampton was German. He was deemed the writer of the ransom note because he was German, only because he was German. He'd only been in the US a few years. It didn't help him that he'd had a conviction for burglary in Germany. Hmm. He was a carpenter and had sufficient knowledge to make a ladder similar to the one used. He looked like the picture created by the police of the man Condon had met in the graveyard. This is where it starts to get a little bit down. That's all the positives. Yeah. Charles Lindbergh testified that Hampman's voice was the one he heard talking to Condon in the graveyard. Okay. I thought he stayed in the car. A taxi driver called Joseph Perone also testified that Hampton was the man who had given him a note to deliver, deliver to Condon's home, which turned out to be one of the ransom notes. Also found in Hampton's address was... Condon's address and telephone number written on a closet wall Hmm. and a notebook containing a sketch of a ladder similar to the one found at the scene. Despite not having an obvious source of earned income, Hampton had bought a $400 radio. Now that's approximate equivalent of nearly $8,000 today. That's an expensive radio. He'd sent his wife on a trip to Germany. Hmm. Other witnesses said they'd seen him in the area around the Lindbergh estate in the days prior to the kidnapping. Hampton had given up his job two days after the kidnapping and never had another one, but he still managed to live quite comfortably. All of this was circumstantial. But then the prosecution brought in some experts. There was a handwriting expert that told the court Hampton's handwriting had similarities to the ransom notes. Best of all, from the police point of view, was a wood specialist who testified that one of the sections used in the homemade ladder matched the wooden flooring in the loft at Hampton's house. Hmm. I would say that's pretty compelling. Yeah. Of course. It was then the turn of the defence. Now, Hampton denied any involvement in the kidnapping. He claimed that the police had beaten him up until he produced handwriting that was similar to the ransom notes. The de- Fence produced their own handwriting expert who testified that there were as many similarities in Hampton's writing 
as there were discrepancies, concluding that he did not write the notes. Hampton claimed that the drawing of the ladder was not his and merely a child's drawing. His reason for Condon's address and the closet wall was that he had been interested in the case like the rest of the world and probably wrote it there while reading newspaper articles. He claimed that witnesses were mistaken about him being in the area. He told the court that the money didn't actually belong to him. It was the property of a friend, Mr Isidore Fish, who had returned to Germany in December 1933. He had unfortunately died there. In March 1934, Hampton said he found the funds in the box left behind by Fish, and as Fish owed him the sum of about $7,500, he kept it for himself, and he'd been using the money bit by bit ever since. He had no explanation for the wood, but surmised that Fish had been the kidnapper and built the ladder with wood taken from his loft. It was argued that Condom could not have seen the man in the graveyard clearly and had only pointed out Hampton after he had been arrested. In addition, how could Lindbergh identify his voice from a single sentence heard two years previous at a distance of several hundred yards? His fingerprints were not found on the ladder, the ransom notes, or in the nursery. There is no physical evidence against him, and what evidence the prosecution had was purely circumstantial. Hmm. Yeah, he's got a point. After the testimonies of 162 witnesses, the lawyers presented their closing arguments. The defence attempted to insert a shadow of doubt, saying Hampton was innocent of the crime and whoever committed it could not have acted alone. Hampton uh, Hampton was, was framed for a crime committed by Violet Sharp and other domestic employees. The prosecution rested after a five-hour statement recounting all the evidence saying that he was either the filthiest, vilest snake that ever crawled through the grass or he's entitled to be acquitted. <laughs> the jury retired to consider their verdict. It took them 11 hours. They returned a guilty verdict and on the 13th of February... Bruno Richard Hampman was sentenced to death by electric chair. He was offered a reprieve if he gave up the names of others involved. He didn't. He was executed on the 3rd of April 1935, still protesting his innocence. So, what are the issues that caused doubt on the conviction? And these came out a long time after the event and I'll give you some of the details. We'll let your listeners make up their own mind. The Lindberghs had never previously spent a week night at their new home. The window in the nursery was the only one in the whole house that didn't close properly. Lindbergh himself had told the household not to enter the room between 8 and 10. Why was the nurse told to open the window in the baby's room when he had a cough. 
Despite having an almost perfect memory, Lindbergh forgot that he was due to give a lecture that night. Hmm. The family heard nothing during the relevant time, even though they were in the library directly underneath the nursery. The family dog, who normally barked at the slightest noise, was silent all night. When the nanny noticed Charles Jr. was missing, she didn't notice any ransom note on the windowsill. Considering she went in to shut the window as well. Lindbergh was known to be a control freak and took charge of the complete police investigation. All police actions had to be approved by him before any moves could be done. The police department were fully aware that in the eyes of the world, they were it. The eyes of the world were on them, and the investigation, and they were desperate for a resolution. Yeah, they, they had to get something. Yeah, most famous man in the world's got a crime, and the whole world's looking at you. You've got to come up with something. Hampton was beaten up several times by the police during his interrogation, and he reported that to his wife and his legal team before the court case. It was later believed that the police, desperate for a conviction, planted the matching piece of wood in Hampman's loft. Charles Lindbergh made the identification of his son's body by the clothing he was in. Not by the body itself. Yeah, after 73 days, it's, is it? Is it yeah. Can you tell at that? Mm, depends. He arranged for Charles Jr. to be cremated as soon as possible. Yeah, that doesn't sit right with me, that bit. No. It has transpired since that rumours that Lindbergh believed his son believed his son to be less than perfect health-wise. Mm-hmm. Now, this has particular relevance when it was revealed in years later on that he supported the theory of eugenics and was a massive supporter of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi ideology. He even moved to Germany for several months before coming back to the US and running for presidents on those grounds. Ooh. Now, do you know what eugenics is? Um, I do. Um, it's well, I can read it now, but yeah, yeah it's essentially the the belief that you can create your own perfect yeah. life. Um, also called human genetic engineering, it is the belief that through breeding, improvements can be made to a particular group. In short, you could create a superior race by breeding out those with inferior traits or those susceptible to illness or mental issues. If I'm right, the last country to ban eugenics was Sweden, and it was in the 1970s. Up until the 1970s, Sweden were killing people who were mentally ill and things like that. So Now, many historians now believe that Lindbergh himself played a major part in his son's kidnapping, He never actually mourned the loss of Charles Jr. In Mm. late 1940, 
Lindbergh became the spokesman of the non-interventionist America First Committee, arguing that America should not join the war against Germany as they were undefeatable and Britain was going to have to go it alone. His speeches were broadcast to millions over the radio and in keeping with his eugenic beliefs, it has been proved that Lindbergh had several children by German women during his time in Germany, unknown to his wife. Hmm. This has been confirmed by DNA well after his death and Charles Lindbergh died August 26th, 1974. He firmly believed that his genes were superior to most other people and that he would help to produce a superior race of people. It is considered highly probable that Lindbergh considered his son was inferior and contrived to get rid of him by means of this kidnapping. This theory appeared after Lindbergh's death. Incidentally, Hampton's wife never ever believed her husband was involved and she died with that belief. Hmm. Okay. So there is your Charles Lindbergh kidnapping yeah. and the story. I mean, when you read the evidence that they've got, it does seem pretty compelling. It does. And I think the biggest thing is the fact, for me, I, I agree that, I, well... I hope it doesn't happen anymore, but you do see it on TV and TV shows and things like that, that in the past, American police officers, I would say more than British, have beaten confessions out of people. Um, to be honest, I think police forces throughout the world in around the 1920s, 30s, 40s... Yeah, that's what I mean. Did like, that? Yeah. So the, f the thought that the police could have beaten him to do something is entirely possible. Um... The thing that doesn't sit with me in his defense is the money. Because if he was not involved in any way, shape or form, he wouldn't have had that money. And to say, oh, well, it's my friends. I mean, how many times, mm. as a police officer, the, how many times did you arrest yeah. someone and go, it's not mine, that's not mine, it's my mates? I mean, the the friend, Mr. Fish, actually existed. He did live in the same block as mm. Hampton, he did travel to Germany in 1933, and he did die there. Mm. So he may have been involved. But, I mean, my initial reaction would be um, Hauptmann had something to do with it, um, i.e. whether that was like a scapegoat um, set up by the Limburgs, you know, maybe... Um, they turned around and said, you know, you take this one and we will make sure your wife and kids have got money for the rest of their yeah, life. Or I think he had something to do with it. I personally think that um, the death of uh, Charles Jr. was unforeseen. Mm. My guess is possibly that um, when whoever took him out of the nursery tried to climb down the ladder with him, they Dro dropped him. When the ladder broke. Yeah. And he died, He landed on his head and he died from that. That's, uh, but I they, had to, that. they had to carry on 
with the um yeah the story or the the, the way it had been planned because of the fame of Charles Lindbergh himself and the publicity that it was getting. I hadn't even thought where, of that. Where, whether like... Condon had anything to do with it, because it seems very strange that somebody from nowhere suddenly becomes the go-between between the most famous person in the world and kidnaps of, kidnappers of his son. There's a lot to it. Yeah. And the fact that his son may have had some form of disability... We will never know because he was cremated very quickly. Mm. I like that theory, though, that he was dropped. Or, I know it sounds stupid. But... Or was it not? Or was the body not Lindbergh's son? Mm. Yeah, I'm saying if he's, if he's saying it is over a clothing, it's not necessarily a positive idea, is it? No. But there we go. And the clothes were supposedly sent back. Yeah. So how would he be in the same clothes if they were sent back to the house? So Yeah, there's a lot to it. Like I said, there is so much I could have gone into. But basically, we were here for the the, the, the gist of the story. Yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I obviously I heard of Charles Lindbergh. And, and when you said about doing this episode, and you said, oh, we, you know, thinking of doing Charles Lindbergh, and I was like, oh, yeah, the pilot. And you're like, yeah, no, I'm not, not covering his piloting because we just i think you did it a similar time to doing the amelia Earhart one and i was like no we've just done a pilot one like you don't want to do another pilot one and mm. you're like no we're not going to talk about his flying and i'm like what else is what there else, to talk about you know what is there to talk about you know um and i had to look this one up and and again even yeah i i mean he's limberg the dad charles limberg he there's no way he didn't have something to do with that. There's no way because you don't, you don't take control of a police investigation. Doesn't matter how famous you are. There's no way that you think you're a better police officer than the actual police officers. Well, yeah, you know, and you might have like a little bit of a. I'm, I'm sure you dealt with people that you know thought they could do their job better than you, but I, I would they take control of a police investigation? No, because you're not allowed. No. They might think they can do it better. That doesn't mean they're going to do it. Um, exactly. The fact that he was allowed to do that, yeah. Whether his fame let them sort of let him lead the investigation, or whether, like, similar with that John Bonet Ramsey one, you know, the the dad has political influence or power. Well, to, yeah, that's what we thought. So, but the fact that as soon as they found the body, he was cremated. That. That's just not... It's not cricket, is it? Nah, no, nah, it's not. So, um, that's not how we do things. So, yeah, I, I think... I I do I do like the story of um, what you've just said, the fact that he was, it was a stage kidnapping. I think the fact that Charles Lindbergh had faked a kidnapping previously... Yeah, he'd hidden the kid. Yeah, I would suggest even that he could have hired this could either Hauptman or Fish or um, Condon yeah. to come in and go oh yeah well, we're going to stage this and you know, this will be brilliant this and leave a note and and then it, he's dropped the kid <laughs> as he's come out of the window killed the kid and they're like oh right okay we need to cover this we've got a problem here yeah, yeah. so but yeah the eugenics thing I'm not 100% on um, whether his child was ill or, or what 
the movement of Adolf Hitler started really in the 1930s. Um, obviously, it did spread to America quite quickly. Um, obviously, a lot of Americans being German descent. I, I can't imagine that that theory spread there that quickly. Um, maybe a few oh, years later. Quite a big theory. Yeah. 1933 was when Hitler came into power. Mm. So how many people really had heard of Adolf Hitler before he became Chancellor in Germany? <sighs> Outside did, of Germany, probably very few. Yeah. So did Lindbergh have that knowledge of the Nazi party or was it sort of 35, 36, 37 mm. when Hitler really came into fruition when he started to learn about these things at this point it's after his sons died um could just be an accident gone wrong and then they've used it to cover and unfortunately Hauptmann was the scapegoat he's not american they're not really that bothered um and yeah. he's just suffered the consequence of it highly likely but we'll never know but no we'll, we'll not uh, but i will leave your listeners to actually work out yeah what the uh, the truth is yeah and, and if anyone's got any other theories that they uh that they've heard any other stories um drop us a message because i might you know we can i'm sure we can cover it um like a little catch up on yeah, on one of them so if you've if you've heard any other theories or anything like that um that we haven't covered let us know because i say we always like to hear from you guys and um we get messages quite a lot um, I've had emails. I actually had an email from uh, someone who listens uh, requesting um, a story. I'm not going to go into detail of it. You know who you are, and I have replied, and that will be will be coming very soon. So that's a that's a good one. Um, I know we've had a few messages, and I will say this because um, there has been a few messages over the new year um, from listeners, um, basically saying they've listened to a couple of episodes that they didn't particularly like um and i can well there i've had both sides i've had people saying they really enjoyed the um the yearly review that i do um and i've had a few messages saying they don't like it because i do have a tendency to not focus on the history with that um so I, if that has annoyed anyone stay tuned because uh, i don't think we're going to be going into any details on that um we did a conspiracy one um that did not go very well i'll be honest with you guys um it wasn't one of my favorite episodes and it was recorded live so it's not again it's not the best quality and again i've had a few messages in regards to that people saying they didn't particularly like that episode and i totally understand why because i'm with you on that one it certainly wasn't one of my favorites either um but we're going to try and stay away from conspiracies now because we're going to stick with actual history um, and yeah. actually stick with things that I know about and that we can talk about. So um, you have no need to worry. Don't switch off. Don't leave me um, and go and listen to another podcast because we are going to stay doing what we do best and going back to the old school style of history that you know and love. Um, say it every single week, guys. Um thank you so much for listening um we are into our third year now uh this is three years i started in january uh 2020 recording podcasts we've now gone three years um doing podcasts so thank you so much for everyone who's still with me some of you guys have been with me right from the start and um, for those of you who have joined thank you very very much for staying with me 
through this time. It's fantastic. Um, I say it every week. I'd like you guys to like and share the podcast. So everyone who listens, just send an episode to a friend or a family member and just say, you know, just have a listen to this episode. The more people we can get listening to this episode, uh, these episodes, the more I can get out. Um, like I said, hopefully one day this will be my full-time job uh, and I won't have to to go to work for a living um and i can only do that if you guys like and share what we do um put reviews up on things like that as well and if you are interested come and join us on patreon because uh, the adverts that you get on this normal feed you won't get those on patreon and you will be supporting the podcast so thanks again dad for joining us and i'm sure we'll have you back on for a a few episodes in the future yeah well, yeah. I enjoy doing it. Yeah, well, I like having you on because it means I don't have to do very much work. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, but thank you very much. You know, we always learn something more. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I don't half get a lot of messages when, when we put episodes out together. Um, just people saying, you know, when's your dad coming back on? I get that loads. When's your dad coming back on? When's your dad coming back on? And, yeah, it's always good to hear because, uh, like I said, I, when we did that episode a few uh episode 100 i think it was when we was asking questions and um people sort of saying you know what got, what got you into history and well you're you're the reason i got into history so it's uh it's really nice to have you on and you know i'll always have you back on the show so the more people put those requests out the more we'll have you back on oh good so nice to know yeah thank you very much and we'll see you next time Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com.